0: Hello, my friends. Today we're talking to Scott, the founder and CEO at masterworks.io. And we discuss how Masterworks is democratizing access to fine art as an investable asset, the challenges involved with offering fractional shares of artwork, and how to change your focus between scaling and productivity during different stages of a business's life cycle. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO
1: Podcast. Look, so a lot of people who were around in the late, the late 90s, kind of early, early internet days, remember this, but when when I was in high school, my very first company was Basically, a, a, a gaming company, right? But at, but at the time, the internet was really new, and there weren't there weren't really games online. So we built the first major game on the internet. Um, it was a sweepstakes game where people came to the game to try to uh, to try to win money. And everyone from that time remembers these these banner ads, which were these these punch the monkey banner ads. So the site was, um, you know, we were the number one advertiser online. I think we were a. Uh, then it was called Media Metrics, now it's called ComScore. Uh, it's top 17 website. Um, so it was yeah, it was just crazy. It was me and this friend who basically built the the website, got it live, and you know, we we wound up kind of figuring out a marketing angle and how to market it and the thing the thing exploded. But well, that's that's <laughs> definitely, definitely going back in time.
0: Kind of being first to banner ads everywhere. Do you think you made a lasting impact on digital marketing
1: Oh we definitely did so I so from that company I left and I started a company called Ad Knowledge, um, which became one of the largest online advertising companies um, kind of in the you know in the early early to mid2000s and you know a lot of a lot of what we learned running the game was really not about gaming but it was about how to monetize a game which was was advertising. Um, but yeah, I mean, I remember like we, you know, there, there wasn't an ad server that existed at the point of time that we could license. We like, had to build our own ad server. Like we had to do everything first. We couldn't, there weren't people we could hire that knew how to sell online advertising or people that knew how to build, you know, whatever. At that time, they were like, the, you know, basic like CGI scripts. Um, for for a you know quote unquote dynamic website like that didn't really exist in 1996, so yeah, I mean it was it was a cool experience where we were doing everything first and we were hiring people that knew nothing about the internet and training. Um, um, it's just like totally totally different than today.
0: That's really cool. So how did you go from online marketing and uh, first and punching monkeys to <laughs> getting into art? It's because you're very much in the art world
1: now, right? Yeah. So I, you know, it's, it's interesting. So my, I kind of grew up with art books. Um, My mom always liked to draw and, you know, I guess I, I guess for whatever reason, I I was just a creative kid. And, um, you know, I stumbled, I stumbled into art early when I first started to make money from, 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 uh, you know, uh, my first company. And the thing that was different about the art market then versus today is back then really in the late 90s, there wasn't a good, there wasn't a price database that you could go to and understand how much every painting had sold for at auction historically. Right? We kind of take it for granted today that like everything is digitized and it's easy to gain access to all this, this information. But in the late 90s, no one, at least in the art market, had had done that. So there wasn't there wasn't as much of an investment lens as there is today, right? Because you didn't have a data set to um, to analyze. So I think, you know, I think the internet and sites like ArtNet and sites like ArtPrice, which kind of track a lot of this auction data and and publish it to people on a subscription model, um, have really have really changed the art market and brought in a whole bunch of new investors that that wouldn't otherwise be in the market today.
0: So I'm kind of new to viewing art through like an investor's lens. Why do billionaires have like twenty percent of their portfolio in art?
1: So, you know, there's, there's a bunch of reasons, right? Some which are, are maybe financial, some which, which aren't financial. So I, I tell people to think about the art market today very broadly as lots of wealthy families living around the world trading $10 million paintings, just to help you contextualize it, right? So thousands <laughs> yeah. of families living around the world sort of trading these paintings with each other. Now, when someone buys an expensive painting today, let's say they buy a $25 million Basquiat, they definitely think that painting is going to go up in value. They definitely think it's a good store of value, but they probably don't know specifically how to think about appreciation rate or risk or things like that. Right? They're they're just assuming that it's probably not going to go down, may go up a lot. They like having it from a status symbol, so they buy it. Um, you know, Masterworks is really taking that to the, to the next level, where we're the only the only firm in the art market that does index construction to understand returns, we're the only firm that's ever analyzed how art is correlated to other asset classes. Um, we look at individual artist markets from an appreciation perspective. We think about volatility in returns. We think about things like how are art prices impacted by inflation? How are art prices correlated to real interest rates? So really, the, the first ones that have assembled this big data set in the art market and then analyze it to try to understand performance. I, I, I tell people it's like analogous to today, the art market is analogous to like investing in the stock market, um, without knowing the price of stocks, right? Like <laughs> you would still probably buy Google cause you think it's a great company and you think it's going to go up, <laughs> but you don't really have any data around like how is the price of Google stock uh, been historically like that. That's kind of the art market today. That's,
0: yeah, that's really interesting. So actually, I, I realized I want to take a quick step back. Um, how did you first decide to start Masterworks?
1: Yeah, so I, so I started collecting art um, and, I, and I got really into it. And over the course of, you know, a decade plus built um, a top 100 collection of mid-century abstract expressionists. So people like Pollock, Klein, Rothko, de Kooning, um, some names that, that people might, might know of. And just saw the value of my collection grow. Now, you know, I didn't, I didn't really know how to think about that, other than these prices were going up really fast. Like my, my initial assumption was I was really good at choosing art, right? Like, <laughs> but, but, but the reality is, the more, the more, at least in Masterworks, we've looked into the data. The, the, you know, the entire contemporary art market, contemporary art defined as art created after World War II. Is appreciated fourteen percent a year for the last twenty five years, right? So really, as a market, it's been growing more so than than um, just just specifically what I was doing. But I saw that growth. That the problem, the problem then, the problem today is still to allocate to that asset class. Um, you really have to have millions of dollars to buy a painting, tens of millions of dollars to build a portfolio. So it's not really accessible to to almost almost
0: anyone. So Masterworks. Basically allows people to own like fractional shares of these pieces of fine art. Is that like a good sum yeah. summation there?
1: Yeah. So we we take paintings public, right? So just like the same process that Uber goes public, we buy a painting, we file it with the SEC as a public offering, and then we sell shares in the painting. Um, so you can go on the SEC's website with a tool called called Edgar, and you can search Masterworks, and you'll see you know, all of these different paintings that we've taken, taken public and you can, you can read what, what effectively looks and feels like an S1 about risk disclosures and the painting and the artist market. So it's just like a company going public, but, but it's painting.
0: That's really interesting. But so with the paintings though, is it like you buy in and then you get your return after Masterworks sells it at an auction or can
1: you sell your shares at any time? Yeah, that's a great question. So, so historically, when we started the business, it it was definitely the, the former, and it's it's evolved into the latter. So, we originally told people to think of these as three to ten year investments. You know, before we sell the painting, so so longer term kind of illiquid holds. Um, that did change last year when we launched uh, tr- trading markets or secondary markets. Um, so we now have people trading chairs in, in paintings just like they would, they would trade chairs in companies.
0: That's really cool. Uh, so how do you keep track of the fluctuations of the price of individual pieces of art when I, I feel like the only actual marked indicator is
1: when it sells at an auction, right? Yep. It's a very, very good question. So you, you think of the art market. So th- let's take a step back. So the art market today is is, is a roughly one and a half trillion dollar asset class, right? So venture capital, private equity is three trillion dollars. So it's a roughly half the size of venture and private equity. Um, out of that, out of that one and a half trillion, anywhere between fifty and seventy billion dollars a year sells in art. So think of it as a couple percent turnover every yeah. single year, right? Um, if you uh, if you look at the performance of that asset class, contemporary art specifically has appreciated 14% per year for the past 25 years. Um, I'm just forgetting your question now. What was your question? Your question was... How do you track the, yeah, how do you track the prices? Yeah. So, so since since out of, out of the $60 billion a year that, that sells, half of that is a public auction. right? So we have a huge data set on paintings that are just transacting publicly at auction uh, really around the world. And at least in the US, the UK, and Western Europe, there's either state level or federal laws that require uh, auction prices to be, to be publicly reported in a fair and, and transparent way. So it's actually a really interesting, very reliable data set to understand prices of different artist markets and individual paintings on, on a global basis. It's not, frankly, that dissimilar to real estate. So think about how when a house sells, like if you list your house to sell and it sells, that's that's a comparable that someone else with a similar house will look at so we do the same thing like if we have a 1981 basquiat and we're trying to understand how much is this basquiat worth we'll look at other 1981 basquiats that have sold publicly you know which ones are similar stylistically um, you know maybe the the dimensions are similar and we we basically um, you know value works that way just just like it with real estate
0: and is it also influenced by like, the demand in the secondary market for the fractional shares?
1: Yeah, today it's totally not. So we really divorce um, how we think about appraising paintings to investors from uh, trading activity in the secondary market. And a lot of that's just because depending on the painting, not, there, there may not be enough volume to really, um, to really have price discovery. Uh, so we still kind of use you know use both the secondary market price as well as the appraisal price to help help investors think about value.
0: So I think something that i'm I'd be interested to kind of watch is I, I know right now art as an asset class is a, very appealing because it's not correlated to the stock market and it provides really good diversification in that way. Could you foresee? If uh, like this, like fractional share investing becomes m- much more broadly adopted and as part of everybody's portfolio, stocks and art, and people are just kind of thinking about art as another asset, um, it becoming somehow correlated to the stock market just because the like the retail investors have uh, like are all sorry because the retail investors are. Thinking about stocks and art in the same
1: way. Yeah, I think I, would, I I would say it slightly differently, but I think it makes the same point, which is that as any asset class becomes more liquid, then it becomes more correlated to yeah. other very liquid asset classes, and that's just because you know when there's when there's panic in a market, everyone tends to sell everything, right? Right. So so it's interesting. Like you you look at a lot of um, very smart managers. Uh, that have really outperformed for decades. Uh, the the Yale uh, endowment is is always kind of the classic example, and they tend to have a very, a, a lot of very um, illiquid alternative allocations that they invest in, um, and have and have seen some of the better returns from.
0: Yeah, I think that that presents like a really tough problem because I think it's really cool. Uh, you guys are democratizing access to this traditionally illiquid asset. And there's another company we had on a while ago called yield street that that's their whole thing. Um, although they also do like real estate and stuff that you can get fractional ownership in, and that is absolutely amazing. And I love that more people are able to get access to this thing. That's gate kept for the rich, but it also seems like it, it, at the end of the day, could end up being somewhat of a zero-sum game where the, these illiquid assets become totally liquid and then the upper class finds a new illiquid asset,
1: right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I, I I tell people to think of the R market today as we're, we're in the very, very early innings of a mature asset class, yeah, yeah. right? When we, oh, when absolutely. We about, yeah, when we think about and qualitatively, you know, I mentioned to, to think about the market as sort of ultra-wealthy families trading $10 million paintings with each other around the globe, right? Like that, that is the market today. Masterworks is the, is the only firm that has a research team dedicated to understanding returns. We're the only firm using data analytics in the market today. Um, you know, we're the, we're the only firm that has a, an acquisitions team that's really looking across artists. Um and choosing the ones that are that are the best value and the best examples, like there's there's so many basic things that we do today that that are just much better than what everyone else is doing in the market. Um, that I I think a lot of these conceptual questions people have they're interesting they're just interesting like 50 years from now, right? Exactly. Like, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're, we're we're like still in the first I don't know you know 180 days of when Bitcoin was launched. You know <laughs> you know it's like a very we're, we're we're very we're very early uh, in this market. Yeah. So get in, get in with masterworks.
0: Now I actually signed up, <laughs> uh, ahead of this interview to do a little bit of research. And, um, I thought it was funny. I got an email from you that was like, Hey,
1: I'm Scott founder of masterworks. Thanks <laughs> is, for joining. You know what's you know, funny is everyone thinks that that that's, so that is an automated marketing email, but it, is, yeah. <laughs> it does actually come from me. So I do respond to those emails every day.
0: Oh, really? Yeah. 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 Oh, that's good. So like if, if, I responded to that. That goes to your inbox. It goes to my inbox. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) That's funny, man. So you mentioned that uh, one big change that happened with Masterworks in the, since founding it was you went from, you, you launched the secondary market, right? What, how has the business evolved other than that since the beginning?
1: Well, I mean, it's it's a big business today, right? So we're, you know, we we've recently turned profitable. Um, You know, this year we'll buy four hundred million dollars in art. We're the biggest buyer in the art market. Um, Ninety-five employees. You know, it's it's uh, kind of more than doubling every year. So it's just it's it's growing. It's growing rapidly, and it's it's interesting. You know, we didn't start it that long ago, right? Like we started the business. In 2018, effectively, we got our first investment vehicle through the SEC by middle of 2019. Um, so it's really only been a couple of a couple of years. But you know, thinking back, even though when we first started it, I mean, we didn't know if there was product market fit for people being interested in investing in art. You know, we knew the asset that was class was appreciating. We didn't know how much it was appreciating. Um, We didn't know if it was necessarily non-correlated to other asset classes. Like a lot of the things in the beginning were sort of were sort of just a hunch, Um, but today, you know, two hundred thousand investors on the platform. A lot of these one two million dollar paintings sell out in days. Ten million dollar paintings sell out in you know less than a month. Twenty million dollar paintings will sell out in thirty or sixty days. So um, it's it's definitely definitely grown a lot.
0: That's crazy, and. So when you're talking about these paintings selling selling out, it's because you only sell like the amount of value that the painting costed total. I like think it's a finite thing.
1: Yeah, these are all fixed price offerings. So, you know, if it's $10 million offering, we sell $10 million. Um, so it's basically now the way the flow works is we launch a painting, we send out an email and it's kind of first come first serve. You know it's probably not that's probably not the optimal flow because we'll, you know we had a painting uh when was it, it was last friday um this artist named sam gilliam uh, as a one and a half million dollar painting i think it sold out in like an hour and a half two hours you know so uh, it, it creates issues and paintings sell out that fast sometimes because people feel like they didn't really get a chance to um you know an opportunity to to invest so at some point that, you know, we probably need to change that flow, but that's, that's how it is currently. So let's talk about artist markets. What is an artist market? Yeah, so that's a that's a term we use a lot. And, and really, you can just think of an artist as having their own market or their own mini economy that's unique to them. And I guess in certain artists' okay. cases, it's not even mini, right? So if you look at an artist like Monet, uh, Monet this year will probably sell somewhere between... Two hundred fifty and four hundred million dollars. Um, if you assume that five percent of you know Monet's paintings actually sell this year, then you can get to a market cap of five billion dollars, right? Oh. The total value of all all Monet's work. Um, so when we think about artist markets, we're thinking about what's the total value of all paintings from that artist, how many of those paintings are turning over each year. And then what are the returns that we're seeing in that individual artist market? Like how, how much a price is going up. Um, so you know, it's really it's really interesting because you you can look at these artist markets very similar to how you can look at any other asset class. So if you you know, if, if you look at your you know other asset classes you're investing in, you think about what are the returns, what are the volatility in returns, and then what are the risk-adjusted returns or what's often referred to as a sharp ratio. And we think the same way about artist markets. So you look at an artist like Monet, we think he's actually a really, really interesting artist because his returns have been very low compared to most artists that we track His returns are roughly six to 7%. But his volatility in returns, I'll get this specifically, specifically wrong, but it's something like 5%. So his Sharpe ratio is well above one, meaning that he's an incredible store of value. The returns are you know, pretty predictable in um, investing in Monet, you know, you're you you can be reasonably confident that you're probably probably not going to lose money. There's always exceptions, and you know it can happen, but you're you're, you're probably not going to lose money. Now, if we compare and contrast that to an artist like like Sam Gilliam, who I just mentioned, you know, Sam's market today is is totally on fire. His his appreciation over the past uh, five or ten years is an excess of of thirty percent a year. You know, his paintings were selling for. 10 years ago, they're selling for, you know, one, one and a half million dollars today. Wow. Um, There's definitely volatility in his market, right? Like, so there's been massive appreciation, but because there's been massive appreciation, his prices haven't been that predictable. They've been going up, but they still haven't been that predictable. Um, So his his Sharpe ratio is not necessarily that much better than Monet's right? As, vol- as volatility is much higher. So we think of, from, from a financial perspective or a risk-adjusted return perspective, we think of those artists similarly, even though a lot, of, a lot of self-directed investors would be like, Monet is 6 or 7% and Sam Gilliam is whatever it is now, 40%. Um, you know, Sam Gilliam is a much better investment. It's not, not necessarily true.
0: That's interesting. So uh, Monet is Berkshire Hathaway and Gilliam is Tesla.
1: <laughs> yeah, or Gilliam is even <laughs> someone hotter than Tesla. I don't yeah, know. I, <laughs> I, don't know. I yeah. couldn't think of one.
0: <laughs> that's yeah. great. So, but man, yeah, that's just so interesting. How it's like so much value tied to like because because Gilliam is alive, right? And like painting. he's still
1: living. He's still living. So that so that's another really interesting point. Is if you look at the top 100 artists defined by transaction volume. Um, it's very rare for an artist to make the top 100 list and, and then subsequently produce negative returns. Usually what we see is that artists make the top 100 list, their returns decrease over time, over, over decades, or, or in some cases over centuries, and they eventually appro- approach inflation. Right, So they become good store of values, but they don't really generate returns. And An artist that would be an example of that is Rembrandt. If you buy a ten million dollar Rembrandt today, you know you will probably sell it ten years from now for the price you paid plus inflation. Um, he's just not, you know, that is an artist. He's not that much in fashion, even though he's still, he's still obviously historically very, very important. Um, you know, there's other artists too in the in the top 100 list that you can look at, like um, like Damien Hirst is the one that I that I often use use as, as an example. Uh, He's he's one of only three artists in the top 100 list that have produced negative returns consistently, and uh, he's a living artist, and and he's just done things to his market that have really caused his ecosystem, his ecosystem of of galleries of collectors, um, to to really stop stop supporting him. Um, so you know, when art- artists are living, they can do things to their market that. That obviously, an artist who's deceased can't do, and and they can positively impact it, but they can they can negatively impact it as well. And you know, we, we do see that from time to time.
0: Man, that's crazy. So it's is there? Do you guys have an app that people can can use to manage their portfolio? <laughs> we well, yeah, we
1: always get the "Do you have an app?" question. <laughs> um, we, we 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 don't have an app today. So I mean, we have a web app, right? So you go to the website um, and use the website and review the offerings. I and mean, most of our investors are investing thousands of dollars per painting rather than hundreds of dollars per painting. Then I mean, we do right. have people investing hundreds, but, um, so they, they tend to be, they tend to be larger. So a, a web app has always been a little bit more relevant than a, than a mobile app in that context, but we're, we're planning on releasing a, a mobile app, um, uh, to help people manage their secondary market trading, um, as well as some other, other features of the website that are just, just more convenient in a mobile app.
0: Very cool. So I want to get a little bit into um, like your venture capital investing that you've done in a little bit, kind of some tips and tricks for, for people, I guess. So what are like, what do you look for in a company when you're looking to invest in a startup? What are some of the best things that you can see?
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm not, so I don't really, you know, I've started a lot of companies, I've invested in a lot of companies, but they're, they're usually companies that are my idea or that I've, I've, you know, acquired or that I, you know, there's sort of they're they're usually driven by me, right? So I don't I don't I'm not okay. good at kind of passively giving <laughs> capital to people and letting them letting them run with it. Um, I, I like to take bigger positions and and different companies. And for many years, I did that. I did that with online advertising businesses. Uh, I, I mean, I think I think the thing that that is most important in any business is just fundamental strategy, and that's really changed. For me personally, and how I think about entrepreneurship and how I think about success over the past 20 years, I think if you rewind very early in my career, I would have said it's all about execution, right? It's moving fast, it's iterating fast. Um, and I still think that's very important, right? I still think the ability to move quickly, iterate, get things done is is critical. But you know, you have to be, you have to have a strategy that's pointing you in the right direction to begin with. Because great execution on a bad opportunity is still going to get you nowhere. So I I still see CEOs that are often focused in one of those two buckets. They're very good strategically. They're very bad at execution or they're very good at execution. They're very bad at strategy. And I think really to have a great business, you have to be good at both.
0: Yeah, That makes a lot of sense. I mean, you really can't do anything without both or, well, you can't do one thing. You could run your business into the ground. But
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's, 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 a, there's a lot of companies with CEOs out there that are just, you know, charging towards walls. Like, it's, you know, it doesn't, you never want to be that guy.
0: For sure. So how do you, how would you describe your personal approach to leadership at your company today?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, I think leadership is always, you know, obviously it's always an extension of, of the founder. Um it, Mine is really just an extension of my personality and what what I've found over the years to work for me. And what works for me is is really a culture that's very data driven, very frankly task-oriented, very um, measurable and objective. Uh, you know, for example, like obviously our business has has a lot to do about art. I mean, there's a lot of the business that has nothing to do about art, right? There's a lot of the business that's to do with building technology and Kind of you know financial engineering and sort of like all, all of the stuff that we're doing for the first time, but we hire a lot of people from the art market. Um, you know, candidly, ninety five percent of the people that work in the art market today are not culture fits with masterworks because they're not data driven. You know, they don't they don't know how to make decisions based on data. Um, we just you know we're looking at the asset class through a very Objective lens, like like nobody's really done before. Um, so we try to sort of keep keep that that analytical, data driven decision making theme throughout throughout the company, and then just a um, a highly iterative culture where we're we're moving fast. You know, like from a tech perspective, we have we only have uh, I think it's like eight or nine engineers now. Um, you look at some of our competitors in different asset classes; that literally have hundreds. I mean, some have 250 engineers. Like, I have no idea what those engineers are doing, um, but they, you know, they just have massive amounts of, of people seemingly doing nothing. Um, so we'd like to just, you know, move fast, get things done, release features, um, build product, and and you know, help help investors find really good investments.
0: You know, a, a bit off topic, you mentioned that it seems like there's these companies that have engineers that are doing nothing. I actually just yesterday read this uh, Wall Street Journal article talking about a trend in um, not not only tech, like lots of kind of just like high earning roles that have gone remote during the pandemic of people picking up a second full-time job and uh, faking it and not telling anyone. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, and- I can totally see that. There's like stories of people that uh, set up two webcams on their computer and take two <laughs> meetings at once if they don't have to like say anything. Um, I was like, man, that sounds like that's better than any raise you can get. That's double your salary.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, cultures are interesting, right? Like as you see companies go from 10 employees to hundred employees to 500 employees, to 2000 employees, it, 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 it they, they just slow down, right? Like the like highly complex organisms, that Deal with people like they, they just don't they don't move quickly. So it doesn't doesn't surprise me. I mean, the, I think the productivity at a lot of these big companies is just really low. Um, I mean, you
0: said that your company is currently at ninety five employees. Like that's not tiny. How are you keeping keeping it fast? Like practically, I know that Yeah.
1: Mean, I mean, the biggest company I've had is it's been it has been six hundred. Right. So so everything from whatever, four people through through six hundred. Um, you, you you, know, we, we talk a lot about and we think a lot about people structure process, but not in the context of, you know, how do we get more of it, in the context of when do we need it and when do we not need it. So for example, we're we're definitely right now focused on on scaling, right? So when I think companies go through a scaling phase, you, you don't want to focus on efficiency. So from from a process perspective, Efficiency doesn't matter, right? Effectiveness matters. Rolling out key features that are high priority that help the business grow quickly is really, really critical. But I don't care if I have to overhire somewhat or if the structure is not perfectly efficient, because I'm just focused on tripling the business this year. Now, as growth starts to slow, I start to focus on things I like process more to, to, to get to, to get more efficiency. Um, so I think it's always just dependent on the life cycle of the company. And it's another thing that I, that I see CEOs do, do wrong too, right? Which is, you can't have too much process too early. You can't have no process too late. You know, it, it really just depends on the, the stage of the business.
0: So what's, what's one thing that you think would have helped you when you were starting your first company, if you knew it? Oh
1: man, so many things. <laughs> So many things. Um, you know, I, I guess I'm just like, I, I'm trying to think like what things are most, most influential to me. Um, so I was, you know, my dad is an engineer. Um, I started doing web design early, early in high school, um, kind of when the internet was, was starting, I actually ran BBSs before the internet I was kind of a geeky, hit, geeky kid. And, uh, I think my people skills early on were were most challenging, and I tell people these stories and they laugh about it because they say it hasn't changed that that much. But <laughs> like when when I, when I was when I was, I just had no people skill. I mean, I was super aggressive, had no people skills. Very we binary in terms of how I thought about things. I mean, I remember this meeting I had at my first company, um, and there's a sales rep sitting in this meeting. In this big room. I, I don't remember how many floors. 20, 30, 40 people, something like that, right? And this one sales rep just kept asking questions consistently to me that were just totally off point, totally annoying, total distraction. And he raised he raised his hand, his hand in this meeting. He asked the question and I pointed to him and I said, you're fired, get out. And to me, it was totally rational. Right, the guy was just totally, totally out in left field. He he wasn't contributing. He just wasn't working. He wasn't providing value. So, from my perspective, you just get out, right? <laughs> but you know, lear- learning how to how to deal with that and communicate more effectively um, over time, I think was probably was probably one of the biggest challenges I had, still have.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that that sounds about right for just where you were in, in life and in your career. Like, cause that yeah. was your, uh, that was your, your first company that ended up being like top 20 ranked websites. Right. Yeah. 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 That, that was the company. Yeah. Yeah. And you're, you're, you're early mean, yeah, 20s. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you're like, this is, this is how bosses <laughs> are. Right. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Something like that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean, I, and I think that's, that is a, a really valuable lesson though. Thinking just having more patience and empathy for the, your employees, because I'm sure that guy was probably, I mean, I can't say he was probably a decent salesman, but he could have been a decent salesman. Um, and yeah. just a bad meeting guy. Um, and he, was, he, was, he,
1: was, he wasn't a good salesman, but oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, uh, he, he just, yeah. Yeah, so I, you know, I think I think that's right. I mean, I think one of the things you learn in a leadership role is, is sometimes being right is 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 not you know just being right isn't necessarily the be all end all, right? Like you can be right and you can still be wrong, or you can still kind of you know hurt the company culture. Or you can still it, it's yeah, be, being being right isn't necessarily always the most important thing
0: yeah that's and that, that's a really powerful thing to I mean, learn and let go of because yeah i mean really in that hard. in that
1: situation i was definitely right <laughs> but it was still wrong you know what i mean <laughs> right
0: right yeah. uh, that makes sense so i guess uh one, one more topic i want to cover before we wrap up is um how do you because when you're talking about iterating quickly and learning fast and moving fast as a company failure is a Important and valuable part of that. Uh, so, how do you approach failure within your teams and allow them to to try and fail and learn and and be okay with that?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, this is such a hot topic anymore. I mean, it's been a hot topic now for years. You know, fail fast, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, I don't, I don't personally find it as easy as it sounds like it, it, there's, there's definitely a threshold of, you know, there, I guess it's taking a step back when we, when when I've started businesses in the past, the way I think about starting a business is I have an idea for a problem, right? I think about the TAM, how big is the market for that problem? I think about who are the competitors? How can I differentiate within that market? Um, I think about product, right? Like, is there is there a product that's easy to build that that, that solves that problem? Um, and then we prototype it and we start testing, right? So with Masterworks, we we had this idea of allowing people to invest in in paintings. Um, we weren't quite sure how the financial product would work, we, you know. But we basically built a website um, and we started running ads on Facebook, um, a fake website, right? That didn't. Really exist was just just to kind of like prototype the concept, see see what our engagement was like, see what our cost per leads were, see how people interacted with it if they engaged with it, and we had really good data back. Right, like we had really low cost per leads, there was really high engagement. So at that point, we decided to to go to go all in and start um, you know start building the business. So. We then had to, to go through all of these hurdles where we, we had to solve in order to, to, for the business to keep going forward, right? Like, we, we had to securitize our first painting with the SEC, which had never been done before. We had no idea how regulators <laughs> were going to react to that. That yeah. was a huge risk. I mean, they could have shut it down. It took us a year and a half to get the first painting through the SEC. And believe me, that was a stressful process, right? Like We're building the company, hoping that eventually we, we get cleared to sell securities in these, these vehicles, um, so my, this is a long way of saying, I don't know in that situation how failing fast or this concept of failing or knowing when to fail would have ever worked because I never knew if, if it would exactly be successful. We just kept pushing a little bit further every time, hoping that eventually you know it works. But, but a lot of these businesses, you kind of have to think of them as, as, as there's 10 things that have to go right in order for it to be a big win and you complete one, you check it off the box and then you go to the next thing, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't, but you got to keep trying until you, until you eventually know if, if, if it doesn't work. And I guess maybe the problem that some companies get into is they get to point, you know, number six out of 10 doesn't work. And they just keep trying on point number six over and over and over and over and over. Um, but it's you know it's hard today to really start businesses that 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 are successful like everything is so competitive even when you just think about the tool sets that have been developed to allow you know businesses to be built quickly everything from whatever task management apps to development apps to you know there's it's just like easy to start a business today yeah. compared to to before there's so many services you can use um, that people spin businesses up all all the time but i don't you know it's always taken us at least a very, very shortest period, six months, maybe maybe twelve months to figure out if something something really has potential
0: yeah on the on the topic of how it's there's so many tools out there just to spin up a business, um, just a really interesting use case of of that logic is uh, there's this company Firefly Aerospace that we actually got to talk to a little while ago, and they're like a SpaceX private space company building rockets and stuff but he said the their ceo said that their long-term vision is to become like an OEM marketplace of rocket parts so that yeah, any cool. company can just kind of buy different parts to make a rocket that fits in a niche of the space industry yeah, that's and just super cool. make a space company
1: <laughs> yeah that's but, super cool
0: yeah so i think if it's happening there it's happening everywhere. And, yeah, you know,
1: you know, like even Slack is such a great example. Like we used to, at a lot of the first companies I had, we used to run IRC servers. Like a lot of people don't even know what IRC is, but that was the first chat protocol on the internet. Right. And, and that was really the concept that, that Slack was um, was founded on. I think when they first started the app, it was actually running, the backend was running on, on IRC servers and they just reskinned the, the front end. Um, but yeah, I mean, Slack now has totally changed businesses yeah. And like, uh, how can I mean, how can you, in, in today's world, how could you function on email only? You know, it'd be no. like, <laughs> so just the ability to kind of use those tools and, and quickly start generating productivity is, is really different than it was 15 or 20 years ago.
0: For sure. Well, before we wrap up, is there anything that we didn't get to cover today that we want to make sure we hit on what, what do you want to shout out for Masterworks?
1: yeah, so the masterworks shout out so uh, masterworks.io go go there create an account uh, click click request access. get your schedule email a, from Scott. get, get your email <laughs> from me which you can respond to and it will be me. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, um, schedule a time to speak to our membership team. they'll they'll run through how you're investing today, kind of um, you know what your risk tolerance is enable your account and you can start investing in art and, and I mean fundamentally our thesis is this is this is one of the most compelling asset classes right if you if you think of contemporary art which has returned 14 percent a year for the past 25 years it's non correlated it deserves a place in a portfolio whether it's one percent or whether it's five percent or whether it's ten percent you can debate the allocation um, but but we do think that that really every type of investor should have some some allocation to it